welcome to the Canon Rents Podcast, Volume 11, Issue 545, in which we discuss Nintendo Land. Joining me, Ryan Zhao, in Issue 545 are Akil Croder. This is going to sound very inaccurate and, uh, and terrible, but I'm going to give it a try regardless. Welcome to Nintendo Land. <laughs> yeah, we could apply some of those That's filters in post. Yeah, yeah. maybe, maybe in post robotic. it will sound better. Yeah, yeah. And people think, wow, he's, Michiel's really accurate with these impressions. And Jesse Fuchs. Welcome to Nintendo Land. <laughs> Do what you wish with that. Put me through the Laurie Anderson voice of authority one, so it's like two octaves lower, actually. just If we speak through one of those rotary fans, then I think we can just about get it right. This is going to get increasingly elaborate. All right, well, Nintendo Land. No need for a specific spoiler warning on this one. If there is any story, it is uh, fairly light. It was, it was built as an exhibition of the Wii U technology, and it just kind of stands alone as like a pleasant little minigame collection. So no, no big spoiler warning on that one. But uh, if you have the opportunity to play it before our discussion, we'd still recommend that anyways, just because it's, uh, it's a good time. Uh, Nintendo Land was released on uh, November 18th. And November 30th in North America and PAL regions, respectively, in the year 2012. And a little bit later, on December 8th of 2012 in Japan. It was developed by Nintendo EAD, one of Nintendo's kind of biggest in-house teams. Specifically, this was developed by the team who had just finished up with uh, Wii Sports Resort. This, this was started kind of immediately after Wii Sports Resort and through its various iterations. Um, you'll see a lot, of, uh, a lot of shared personnel with that series and uh, a lot of the kind of previous EAD properties, of course. Uh, the, this was directed by Takeyuki Shimamura, who got his start on RoboWarrior back in 1988 as a programmer, but then more recently was a system designer on Nintendogs, mm. worked on Wii Sports and Wii Sports Resort as a director, and um, has since served as a co-producer on Metopia, a co-producer on Ring Fit Adventure, uh, as well as several other credits of uh, the big kind of Nintendo in-house properties like that. RoboWarrior, are you serious? That's the uh, Hudson <laughs> slash Jellico uh, game of the 1980s. I found a credit anyways. I'm not sure if it's accurate because that would... Um, that would present a very long time of not being credited with anything between yeah. 1988 and Nintendogs, but <laughs> I throw it in there anyways. So. Yeah, I had that on my Nest like back in the days. Crazy hard okay. game. Yeah. <laughs> That's the fun thing about some of these Nintendo kind of first party properties is that you oftentimes do get people who go all the way back to yeah. the very yeah. beginning. Um, so you never know. It, it, could be, uh, it could be a credit and error, but um, just thought I'd include it just in case. Yeah. Um, also directed... By Yoshikazu Yamashita, who uh, got his start on Mario Artist Talent Studio as a programmer, uh, worked as a programmer on Pokemon Stadium 2, Pikmin and Pikmin 2, uh, Wii Sports and Wii Sports Resort as a director, and then uh, went on to afterwards uh, act as a senior director on Super Mario Maker, and then supervised several of the handheld Zelda games, um, going back to the Oracle games, um, did a little bit of work on the, um, on the Minish Cap, and uh, yeah, has, a, has a, another fairly extensive uh, bio there. This was produced by Katsuya Eguchi, the creator of the Animal Crossing series, of which we'll see a uh, loving homage in this game. Uh, he was a designer on Super Mario Bros. 3. He was a director on Star Fox back on the Super Nintendo, 
worked on Wave Race 64 as the director and was a chief designer on Yoshi's Story, uh, worked as a producer on Wii Sports and Wii Play, and he was one of the Wii U hardware producers. Uh, this was programmed by Soichi Nakajima, who worked on the Luigi's Mansion, Nintendogs, Mario Kart DS, Wii Sports Resort, and uh, more recently Splatoon in a programming capacity. And the music was composed by Ryo Nagamatsu. Uh, was a little bit more of a recent entry to the Nintendo stable, um, going back to uh, several titles on the Wii, Wii Play, Mario Kart Wii, Wii Sports Resort, New Super Mario Bros. Wii, Super Mario Galaxy 2, uh, Mario Kart 8, A Link Between Worlds, Triforce Heroes. Um, you see much of that carried him through the uh, the Wii U generation and um, and then even through uh, some uh, supporting credits on the Switch as well. So yeah, kind of a, a good stable of um, experienced Nintendo programmers and, and designers, uh, most of which kind of uh, caught most of their work during the, the Wii period. Um, so perhaps a, a fresher batch than the Nintendo kind of classic stable of, of, you know, decades and decades long workers. I'm definitely interested in talking about this game in the context of, of kind of the greater Nintendo mission and maybe not to frame my mostly positive, but somewhat ambivalent reaction, you know, uh, to the thing as a whole, that it, it is a reflection of the part of Nintendo uh, I love the most in a sense, like the part that makes me you know, willing to buy a Wii U before I got a PlayStation 3, for instance. Uh, and I still have never owned an Xbox 360, scandalously. Uh, but, you know, but a, a little underwhelming at the same time. But it's, you know, when you look at Miitopia, you look at Wii Sports Resort, you look at Ring Fit Adventure, you look at Nintendogs, you look at, you know, this kind of, um, that side of Nintendo, the sort of lateral thinking side, which is also maybe, you know, the novelty side, and, you know, maybe a big question we'll come back to with some of these games is, you know, is an essential quality of novelty that it eventually wears off? Yeah, uh, Shiro Mora has just kind of a, a fascinating career I'd like to uh, look at more after after we are done. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty telling that this was commissioned of the Wii Sports and Wii Sports Resort team in particular, because, you know, those were the kind of the big showcases for the Wii's technology. And, you know, Wii Sports famously one of the best-selling games of all time, if not still the best-selling game of all time. A very, very popular exhibition came packaged in with the console in most cases and was arguably throughout the Wii's entire life period still the strongest exhibition of its uh, kind of core idea of what made the Wii the Wii, you know, showing off its motion tech and um, making it very accessible and intuitive in a way that Nintendo was kind of still chasing throughout the rest of that generation in a way. And so, you know, they they went back to that team with the challenge of uh, the Wii U is a more, I guess, complex piece of hardware in a way. This game, I think, is pretty inseparably tied in with the Wii U, obviously, because it's not available anywhere else, but also like it is specifically designed to take advantage of all of the Wii U's kind of weird features and kind of playing that role that Wii Sports played back in uh, back in the launch of the Wii and then Wii Sports Resort with the launch of the Wii Remote Plus, Wii Remote Motion Plus. I don't remember if it was uh, what 
the specific nomenclature was. We Motion Plus, yeah. We Motion Plus, cool. Yeah, there we go. I, I was trying to think how you would possibly emulate Wii U games, and I suppose if you had two Switches, right? You couldn't do it with one, but <laughs> one Switch, yeah, yeah uh, is is the pad, and then the other one's just plugged into the TV, and and is controlling the other Joy Cons. Maybe someday. The Nintendo Online has a ways to go before they get to to uh, Nintendo Land, but that's one of the things I was thinking about. This in particular is that there are Wii U emulators out there, and most of them do a reasonably good job of emulating most Wii U games. Because, like, to be honest, like the features of the gamepad started to kind of fizzle out pretty quickly. <laughs> After Nintendo Land was launched, you know, we got a a few games that really took strong advantage of it, like Super Mario Maker. But even a lot of first party games didn't use the lower screen at all. I think Super Smash Brothers for Wii U might have even turned the screen off. I don't remember. Uh, Or it could have just been used for scoring and and, um, keeping track of player percentages. Uh, Breath of the Wild barely used the, the Wii U gamepad at all. But I think this game in particular is so reliant upon all of the features of the gamepad that if you're not playing this on in on uh, original hardware i don't see this ever being fully playable and available again so it is one of those things where it's like from a game preservation perspective it's kind of scary uh but also like if you haven't played this game and you have the ability to go out and buy like a used wii u and a used copy of the game like you might want to get on that because this is a game that you're probably not going to get the chance to catch up with at any point further down uh further on um in the future so yeah it's a bit of a scary prospect for this one this one really has a um a high risk of just disappearing the reception to this one is uh i I found it kind of interesting it got from a video games review perspective so grading on that on that sliding scale, which is a 6 to 10 scale instead of a 0 to 10 scale. Um, this got kind of middling reviews um, in a way. A 77, it's not it's not terrible, but it's not the typical 8.5 to 10 like you usually see for Nintendo first party games, or you would in a lot of cases. I guess, you know, Nintendo does have some kind of lower esteemed first party releases as well. But for something that was ostensibly taking the place of, of Wii Sports, Coming out the gates, this has a 77 on Metacritic with a 7.9 from users and a 78% on game rankings. And I Mm. kind of wonder if this was due to its place in history. Pack-in titles have a bit of a different journey than commercial properties. Sometimes reviewers go a little bit easier on them because it's like, well, they're not asking for any kind of like financial obligation other than purchasing the console it's something you get for free so we'll judge it on that metric sometimes they are viewed as being more disposable than games that you would have to pay for and um, are kind of held in that light as well but i also think that this came like the wii u generation obviously following the wii generation and there was kind of nothing that was seen as more cheap and disposable on the wii than like mini game collections in a way whether it's Mm. fair or not but um towards the end of that generation in particular i think people were up to their eyeballs in in excessively low quality collections of mini games i I don't mean to even disagree with the seven seventy seven seven point nine seventy eight percent um because 
I think if I were to kind of search my own heart, I do like this game a lot, but like that's probably around where I would put it. I just think that it's, uh, you know, interesting to kind of like frame it in that that period of time. So we'll have varying reactions to the individual mini games, but uh, yeah, this is a mini game collection. So let's kind of view it as such. Let's get into our histories. I presume that all three of us would have got this packed in with our Wii U consoles, but um, if anyone did purchase it separately, I'm, I'm very curious to hear that. Um, Mikhail, how far back do you go with this one? Pretty much to yeah, roughly the beginning. I was working at Nintendo of Europe at this time, um, and we got, not at launch actually, but a couple months later, because uh, they were kind of uh, hard to, to source at the, at the beginning, uh, everybody got a Wii U uh, for office office use pretty much you know connected to a second monitor uh and we all got the uh what 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 was called i guess the pro model or something the black one with the extra large or the, the larger uh storage space and nintendo land packed in so a couple months in and at the time you know you could just take it home as well and use uh, take uh, and, and play it at home uh, take it home in the weekends if we didn't have to uh, use it in the office for usually it was something like oh we needed to check system settings and check some terminology because I was working at the uh, online division so there was a lot of like help guides we needed to translate for the website and and that sort of thing so yeah fairly early on uh, we got it uh, and at one point when I left the company I actually asked because I couldn't see myself buy a Wii U for new uh, I still wanted one. I asked uh, yeah, my uh, boss if I could buy it off the company because I had already used my credit card details on it as well on my uh, my office uh, Wii U. And yeah, that was fine. So I got it for, for let's say, a fraction of the, uh, of the new price uh, that it would cost in stores. And I took it with me uh, when I moved back to the Netherlands from Germany. <laughs> And yeah, we got uh, I got a ridiculous amount of use out of it with uh, with the kids and uh, with friends coming over, and it's getting used to this day. So if you say like a seven or, or the, the the Metacritic score for me, it ranks a little bit higher than that uh, because I think the the best games on it um, are actually quite excellent, and uh, the staying power of the compilation. And uh, of a fair number of its games uh, has only made it grow in my esteem over time. Excellent. Jesse, how about you? Uh, I got a Wii U. I hadn't even already thought about this in a while. But uh, yeah, the circumstances are, are, I guess, kind of unique in that um, I got it in, I guess, 2013, uh, early 2013. I forget when it came out. Was it 2012? It was, yeah. Right. End of 2012. I got this consulting gig that was this bafflingly lucrative thing where I came up with game show ideas for second screen, you know, like TV and, you know, people are distracted by their phones and threw them into a big hole where they were never heard of again. Uh, and, it, you know, it paid very well and I, it was part of some giant bureaucracy I did not understand. And I was just trying to kind of do my bit as a cog as well as I could. And, um, you know, the second screen thing, I was like, well, now that I, you know, I, I have this large S, I get my first paycheck and I'm like, well, I'm going to get me one of those fancy HD TVs. Uh, and I suppose I should get, you know, fancy new video game thing. And at this point, I had been uh, teaching a little bit at NYU, uh, but not a huge amount, but it taught uh, like the Games 101 class, but was very much on the tabletop side 
uh, more than the video game side. And in fact, it was kind of at my peak of kind of being distrustful of AAA. Like everything was gray and brown. I don't know. Just, you know, I liked Nintendo. I had a Wii. I was content. And there was a part of me that thought it was appealingly perverse to, to buy a Wii U before I ever got a PS3 or a uh, uh, Xbox. Also, the one, uh, if I had played Dark Souls, I might have decided differently. And I say that because the, the game I had gotten kind of obsessed with on the Wii was Monster Hunter, because there was some, you know, I had an itch, I guess, for a complicated, fiddly game. Uh, and that was, you know, the one that was actually on the Wii. So it was a combination of this second screen game show gig and uh, being like, well, there'll be ideas here. Uh, and um, yeah, just Monster Hunter Ultimate seeming, you know, like a thing I wanted to play that made me go in on it. And those were like my only two games for a while. I played a fair amount of Nintendo Land, but I played it more over at friends' places uh, that also had Wii U's because, you know, I had video game developer friends who had bigger apartments than me, so that was more likely to be the social place. Uh, and it was also, I would say, you know, around-ish the peak of kind of local multiplayer being uh, a thing that design students are interested in. So I ended up playing mm. it a bunch down at the game center as well. Uh, not that they're not still, but between the pandemic and uh, the ability to do online multiplayer becoming less completely horrific, you know, there's more of a <laughs> plug and play uh, than 20 in 2013. You know, we had, you'd actually see Nintendo Land getting played a reasonable amount if you went in uh, to the game center. Certainly if the Wii U was being used and it wasn't Mario Kart and then later Splatoon. And yeah, I don't know, you know, and I played it, uh, brought it down, visited my nephew and played it with him and my sister. And yeah, but but hadn't touched it in ages. And so I went back to it recently uh, and um, brought it, yeah, brought it down to the game center because their copy went missing at some point and uh, played it with some students down there. And it was really nice to introduce it to a, a whole new generation who, but it, but a few of them were like, oh, yeah, I heard that's not, uh, someone brought up one to switch uh invidiously and someone else was like oh yeah i heard you know that it was the sign the wii u wasn't gonna i forget but you know it was interesting that that there was a bit of an element of of these 20-ish year olds being like oh actually there's something here that is worth looking at even today didn't realize my history with this one i purchased a wii u not directly at launch but pretty soon after um, it was my year after university. I was still living in my university town and um, I was working part time and I uh, was doing some work in the university lab. Uh, but I had a lot of free time. So, you know, bought a Wii U, had some friends in town that would come over very well, uh, fairly often to play Nintendo Land or I guess as I affectionately referred to it, Pachinko Land because we always kind of culminated our play <laughs> sessions with some very high energy games of uh, oh, yeah. of the pachinko mini game that you can earn coins and collect uh, decorations and stuff in this game. And so that was uh, that was one of the perhaps a little tongue in cheek, but also, you know, also kind of seriously, like one of the highlights of my experience playing Nintendo Land. So, yeah, it was a frequent game that we would come back to just really enjoy these uh, these little mini games. Um Played them probably more than I would have if the game came out today and I had my full kind of like competitive library of of games all vying for my attention. But uh, because it was just kind of a right place at the right time with the right people around me, um, it was a, 
uh, kind of a no-brainer to um, to really get into this one. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the structure of the game. Um, as we mentioned, it's a mini game compilation, but it's all compiled in a really kind of pleasant package. It kind of kicks you out into a lobby, which is a, a big circular space with a lot of me's milling around. You're immediately greeted by this character who's going to see you through the entire game named Monita, which I really, I really like that name. Uh, in particular, it's like several good puns all kind of packed into yeah. one. It kind of has yeah. a look like Monica, which is a good like a good name for like a tour guide. <laughs> yeah. She is a computer monitor. So that's another layer of the pun there. And then I don't know if it's like, it's pronounced like Bonita, like beautiful yeah. in Spanish, but I don't know if that's like intentional, but it's uh, yeah, it's just, it's a good name for a good character. I'd say yeah, it, it works. The first thing that strikes me is that I just, I love the music that plays in this lobby. Uh, it's this really kind of chipper tune. Uh, it feels very kind of Mickey Mouse or, very kind of like cartoon walkabout like just really kind of fun upbeat music doubtlessly we open the show with it so you'll already be familiar but um it's it's one of those pieces of music that has been kind of stuck in my head ever since this game came out and um i'm not upset about that uh and then (laughs) as the uh as you go back to the lobby time and time again you'll eventually get the ability to perform this toggle yourself uh but uh You'll be able to change the time of day in the lobby from daytime to sunset to the middle of the night. And there are different uh, mixes of this song that play during those time periods, as well as an 8-bit version of the song that it shifts Mm. into when you hit the pause menu. So musically, just really fun. It immediately hits you with a lot of color, a lot of design. from a design perspective, like it's given the theme of being in a theme park, uh, kind of like a Disneyland type of scenario. But whereas in Disneyland, they make great efforts to make everything kind of look as realistic and immersive as possible. Here in Nintendo Land, they take the kind of little big planet approach of making everything appear very kind of crafty and mechanical kind of reveling in the artifice of it all, which is another kind of fun choice. But this is, it's all very colorful. It's the first time that we've ever seen Nintendo publish anything in HD. So, you know, this was the big introduction of Nintendo in the HD generation. So from that perspective, I think it makes a really strong first impression when walking to that lobby. Um, Jesse, what do you think? What was your first kind of impression upon like entering this space? I mean, it's funny because I don't remember back in the day. I remember being impressed. I mean, I think I just first saw this game. You know, Zach Gage got uh, a Wii U right when it came out. So come to think of it, my first playing of Nintendo Landing, how my familiar with the Wii U is probably more over there. And uh, he was showing off, you know, played all the mini games. And I mean, I looked at it now, you know, looking at it now was really interesting because, as, as you know, Ryan, we've played uh, Walkabout Mini Golf. And that's like one of my mm-hmm. all time favorite games the last few years, which is incredibly theme parky and each new golf course that comes out is even more you know they they literally hired a disney imagineer they just did one for the disney labyrinth uh movie or not disney henson you know and and that kind of muppety artifice that you're talking about of the you know show within a show uh is is very much a part of it and you know looking at this i was like oh there's still stuff they could do in that game they haven't done like and not not just the oh right like every course could be a separate pavilion like here 
right? As opposed to just a menu, the costumes that you put on for each different thing. Just, it was really interesting because that's a game that I've just held up so much as like this pinnacle of kind of, it's a game, but it's also a theme park. It shows that VR can have this social aspect, blah, blah, blah. And then I went back to this. I'm like, oh no, like, I mean, yes, it's swell, but like these people kind of nailed it in different and, and ways that team could take a look at, you know, 10 years ago. But they still give you the menu, right? There's still that menu that'll pop up that just separates the games into a clean, you know, competitive, cooperative, solo, you know, push the button. So there's, mm. there's both options. Yeah, it's very interesting. I couldn't help, even at the time, just think about may, maybe it was a little bit disappointingly abstract theme park-wise for, for my liking. I would have liked to get more of a, a theme park atmosphere where you kind of wander off into different directions and then come mm-hmm. across the uh, attractions naturally rather than just having these, this one large square with everything neatly organized around the side. That's fair. Uh, I, I've spoken before on this podcast and probably also Sound of Play about how much I love the Disneyland Adventures um, that was put out for the Connect and has since been mm-hmm. kind of re-released on the Xbox One and the Series X. Yeah, that does not require the Connect any longer, but just as a recreation of the Disneyland Park and in pretty excruciating detail as well, down to you know, the the types of trash cans that you'll find in each of the different lands and down to the uh, different types of, uh, of, of rock tiles and stuff that you'll see in the floors in various places, like a, a very stunning recreation of those spaces for, especially, you know, for me, I've spent so much of my uh, life growing up in the Disneyland Park in Anaheim. There was, a, it's really fun to see. And so, you know, I do like those spaces that you can kind of more naturalistically explore. And it makes me kind of wonder like what Nintendo could do with something of that scale. Mm. And I mean, we're, we're kind of getting a, getting a look at that now as they are actually developing Super Nintendo Land theme parks in the real world um, as yeah. a part of uh, Universal Studios uh, theme parks across the world. On the other hand, it is very, very practical, of course, that you don't have to wander mm-hmm. off too far to find these attractions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it does. It, it's the ambivalent. Like, they're all equally important, which is weird because obviously there are some that are kind of throwaways more than others, which are more central. It, it is funny how they just weren't willing to be like the competitive, the three competitive games are kind of the core of this experience or just something to kind of situate it since those are the ones that in some way most show off the unique sort of gameplay you can get with the Wii U pad, right? The, the hidden information that we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think Mikio's right. I mean, I, I like it as a whole, but I think it is absolutely right that there's something, you know, the Wii U as a whole is an amphibious creature. You know, it's, it's some developmental stage that luckily we have the fossil of. Yeah, it does not, it does not uh, convey the kind of, uh, I don't know, the, the, what is the term that Disneyland uses? Weenies, right? You know, sort of the ability to focus, what, what they always say with Breath of the Wild, right? It learns so much from that kind of imagineering ability to focus your attention on a point and guide you around. That is, yeah, definitely not mm, what is yeah. going on here. But also, I agree with Ryan that the music is awesome and, you know, yeah. there's just a lot of lush... You get to open all the little things and they're, you know, and we're, we're doing, uh, uh, there's, there's the, uh, Sony, the Astrobot next week and the whole like corporate, we will let you unlock all of our doodads, uh, is, is fun. And I think, uh, it fills out nicely as, as Ryan was saying, like, I, I don't know, I guess we'll get to the pachinko, but, um, 
<laughs> yeah, whether, whether that was an intrinsic or extrinsic reward might be an interesting thing to touch on. Quite interestingly, when you compare this to the actual Super Nintendo land or Super Nintendo world that they're creating now, that one is very heavily based upon specific IP, uh, most particularly Mario, but I believe there's like a Donkey Kong area as well, or they're planning a Donkey Kong area. And then, you know, as it further expands, you'd probably see something similar if they develop a Zelda area or a uh, Pokemon area, um, almost certainly not an F-Zero area, but um you get these these very heavily themed spaces that are emulating the specific IP, whereas Nintendo Land does kind of present a little bit more of a generic generic Nintendo look. There are the specific decorations from the mini games that you can pull out into the lobby, but it doesn't it doesn't look Mario, you know, as a space. It doesn't look particularly Zelda as a space. Yeah, um, which is. An interesting, you know, it kind of it fits in more with the like me aesthetic rather than any particular Nintendo IP. And me's have always been kind of Nintendo's gateway into kind of more like generic uh, aesthetics in a way. It's like Nintendo viewed through the through the lens of a me, as frightening as that might sound. <laughs> <laughs> right. But there's a little train that kind of flies around, and you can take a ride on that. Doesn't really do anything as far as i remember i think that's how you initiate like a play through all of the mini games at once mode um but uh yeah there's a few little things you can interact with and a jukebox you can use to change up the music and um time of day toggle so yeah it's a there's a lot to see but uh i think most particularly the uh, the decorations um you can unlock and these tend to be assets that are repurposed from the mini games themselves um, all of them made with a very kind of like crafty mechanical sensibility. So, you know, they all kind of, even though they're being pulled from all these separate mini games, they all kind of gel together aesthetically. Once you end up kind of unlocking all of them, the space gets to be pretty crowded. And all of them, I believe all of them are interactive in some way. Some of them just play a little animation when you interact with them. Some of them can kind of transform into a second form or a second state. Uh, so, you know, always kind of new things to see and discover there. But uh, any any thoughts on the journey of kind of unlocking and collecting all of these decorations? For me, it's uh, kind of an afterthought almost, uh, mm -hmm. at least secondary to just the joy of playing some of the staple games in there. But I appreciate that it's there. It gives you something to fiddle around with uh, after you've kind of exhausted your uh, session of party games for the night. Right, and kind of goals to work towards anyways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a funny... Uh, again, like I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of compare and contrast to, to next week with Astrobot, where it's the same, you know, you collect these coins and, and you put them into an intrinsically satisfying claw machine that is just kind of pleasurable to do in and of itself but then you grab a mm -hmm. thing and you know it pops into your world or whatever uh and but you can hit this point where you've unlocked everything and there's still these coins and there's some weird sort of ennui it's not so dissimilar actually from the uh let's say the trophies in uh, the older smash brothers games yeah. with the with the with their sort of mini games attached to them with the, that just seemed to never be exhausted even if you put hours and hours and hours on end on it there's still new stuff that pops up from time to time so let's get into the mini games themselves starting off with some of the meteor ones with um the legend of zelda battle quest as i said each of these are kind of themed after various nintendo ip 
and um, The Legend of Zelda, I think, is uh, one of the ones that I think makes the most of this new aesthetic and translates its uh, IP very well into the space. This is a one to five player game that can be played cooperatively. All players are playing at the same time, but the character, the players with the different control schemes have different types of games even that they're playing. This is an on rails action game. And so everything kind of progresses down a preset pathway through these house of the dead, like corridor stages, Mm. the game play uh, the game pad player has a bow and arrow, which is aimed in first person from the gamepad itself. Uh, There are up to four Wii Remote players that uh, have swords and shields. It has the kind of one-to-one sword motion tracking capabilities of Skyward Sword. They are running along hack and slashing uh, the various foes while the gamepad player provides support from a distance uh, with the bow and arrows. So um, there are a number of stages. And then like a lot of the games in Nintendo Land, once you once you beat all the stages, it does one of those kind of encourages you to play it again at a higher difficulty level. So, you know, to get a complete playthrough, you would be playing through all of the stages twice. Let's uh, let's open it up. Any thoughts on The Legend of Zelda Battle Quest? A lot. Yeah, this is uh, this might be one of the first actual games or maybe minigame would be more accurate that i played together with my kids uh they were just about old enough where you know button controls were might might just have been a little bit too complicated for them but i even have an old picture of me holding the gamepad and them standing side by side with me holding their wii motion plus uh and enabled remotes um and uh just you know swinging their their remotes around uh so I sent them in as the uh, <laughs> as the sword uh, as the as the sword fighters, and then I was trying to cover them with with arrows and everything, and they could just happily swing their swords around. We, of course, the three of us, and they especially got really into it. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a game that really got us into playing together, and it's a pretty tactical game and pretty damn challenging even i don't think we've ever <laughs> made it all the way through always and and it can go wrong very quickly right you, you don't have a lot of iframes when somebody gets hit like you could because you all take collective damage there's a there's a health gauge with a couple of hearts and just it all it takes for one player to get damaged to get a, a heart to do uh reduced and um so it can can happen that all three of you take hits at the same time and then you're almost out of the game already you know unless you find some health items so yeah it's 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 pretty tricky and challenging there's uh, there are a lot of stages uh, you know relatively to it um and yeah still something we actually have to now that they're a lot older we have to you know get back to and try to make it all the way through I only got to play the uh, Battle Quest with two players at the Game Center, uh, but even with just the bow and arrow and one person on sword, it was very much about stop, start, and kind of accidentally getting separated and then grouping back up. There was one point where I, I forgot you could actually get behind a uh, enemy while they're you know defending themselves from the person with the bow. It's more flexible than the on-rails uh, games usually are in that way. Mm. And yeah, there's a, a fair amount of a strategy to that and how you can kind of kite enemies and, and sort of taunt them over uh, to someone with a sword. 
and yeah, I mean, I again, this was one that I did play a fair amount of with just me and my nephew. This was kind of our go-to game, uh, and we liked both sides of it, so it was a good one for that purpose too. Of like, you know, we would we keep switching off after uh, game after game. I guess you know when we get to the other ones, some of them are more asymmetrical, and that I I I enjoy this side of the game, and maybe am ambivalent about the other side or something. But this is one where it feels really well balanced in terms of of what you get to do, how you get to not just interact with the creature, but indirectly with each other and help each other. And uh, I forgot that the Wii Remote. I mean, it's because you're a little muppety guy and everyone's just kind of swinging around wildly like the level of accuracy which is you know maybe not um you know whatever those new quest pro controllers but you know it's good enough and i forgot how much of a quantum leap the uh, the wii remote plus was from the wii remote which was mm-hmm. you know and i feel a little bad for nintendo that that the you know, I, Wii Sports Resort sold a lot of copies and, and, you know, millions of people played this. But I feel like when they actually managed to get motion control is more than just a novelty that you could realize, oh, I can just sit on the couch and, you know, flick my hand if I want to. It got a lot less attention. But but yeah, in mm-hmm. terms of I certainly felt like in both roles, there was a very high skill ceiling because because the controls were accurate enough that I could get a lot better at this. And there was enough tactical maneuvering that yeah. yeah sure this is one you could you could get super into you had a couple of kids just the only problem is you need a big living room because otherwise they'll just keep smacking each other <laughs> smacking each other around the head yeah you also had of course as the sword fighters you could raise your sword skyward sword style uh and and get a, a skyward strike uh, out oh, of yeah. your sword and with the uh bow and arrow you could also like fully charge uh, your shot, like let's say, pull the string all the way back and then charge it for a little while to get an extra powerful far flying shot as well. So there's it's it, there's enough interactivity and enough to do for each individual player, you know, to create a, a nice little set of variables or a possibility space and to handle on rail situations uh, with a little bit of difference. And then like Skyward Sword, there were quite a few objects that you had to slice in a particular direction to properly cleave them in half. Mm. Um, several of the game's bosses kind of threw things at you that you'd have to react to in very kind of precise ways as a sword fighter or just shoot them as the uh, bow and arrow link. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was a kind of surprisingly deep package for what it was. Yeah. And this also illustrates what I particularly enjoy about uh, most of the games in Nintendo Land is... They could have just have this uh, and have like three stages in there, but it's almost a little game into itself with the amount of stages and boss fights that are in there. Uh, you know, there's there's quite a little, quite mo- a lot of more, a lot more meat on the bone than you'd maybe expect. Let's move on to another one of the mini games here. This is another one of the more kind of fully fleshed out ones called Metroid Blast, in which um, there are actually three different game modes. Um, there are the assault missions, which one to five players can play um, as a co-op experience. In this one, the gamepad player flies Samus's spaceship around as a kind of first-person aerial shooter, and the Wiimote players, um, up to four of those, can play as uh, Samus on the ground playing a third-person shooter, essentially. Yeah. Um, they require the nunchucks for this one, so as far as the cost of entry goes, this is probably the highest of <laughs> all of the 
games that you would have to play. Um, but um, but you go through several of these. They feel almost more kind of like Doom 2016 arenas rather than <laughs> yeah. Metroid style maps. These kind of big arenas with different enemies kind of flying all about, and it's just, you know a very different dynamic that the the players on the ground have than the the player in the spaceship that's able to kind of freely fly around and, and shoot things from a distance. The players can kind of grapple up to the spaceship to get another extra lift. Um, I personally found this one to be really fun because I would like to sit in a, um, a swiveling computer chair and then play with the, uh, with the gamepad kind of extended straight in front of me. And then instead of moving the gamepad around, I'd swivel the entire chair. And so you get a, a, a great kind of full body experience doing that. Um, that can be quite fun. Um, there are a couple of other game modes. There are surface air combat in which all of the Wiimote players who would be playing as Samus's or Samai on the ground <laughs> Samai. Uh, would I like that. fight against the, um, the spaceship in the sky. Uh, so it's kind of a 4v1 or however many players are playing V1 and a uh, ground battle mode in which everyone played as a separate Samus. It was just a third-person shooter, kind of deathmatch type of thing. Uh, one of the touches that I really like uh, across all of these modes is that each player has three three life points, so to speak, and um, instead of having kind of big UI elements, they, were, they are kind of stuck to the character's back, kind of like a backpack. It felt very kind of dead space in that way, um, but in a very kind of family-friendly uh, Nintendo uh, kind of spin on it. So this was originally shown off as Battle Me, M-I-I, uh, at E3 2011 before being kind of repurposed for this um, for this package. But uh, what do we make of Metroid Blast? This is uh, a game that also has, of all the games, maybe the most meat on the bone. Uh, it's just unfortunate, like, we never really got enough play out of it because it occupies a little bit of an uncomfortable space where it's not as immediately accessible uh, to, uh, let's say, less uh, gaming or video game versed uh, players as a lot of the other games are. Uh, and also for a multiplayer shooter, third person shooter kind of competitive or cooperative game, it lacks a little bit of the speed and excitement that a typical game in this genre ha genre has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a bit slower. It's a bit more kind of yeah. It doesn't feel as impactful, perhaps. No, you you have a little like if you're on the ground with your arm cannon, it feels a little bit pea shootery. You know, you don't feel particularly yeah, yeah. strong. Uh, which is of course by design. It's uh, very much like okay, you have a certain set of limitations that you need to work around uh, because the I guess they still wanted to keep it somewhat accessible. So it's not like you get absolutely swarmed by enemies from all sides. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the enemy count is fairly low. So to, to still make it a little bit challenging, they'll, of course, you know, limit your powers, what you can do. Uh, yeah, so in, in, in essence, it occupies a little bit of that uncomfortable space in between. Jesse, how'd this one hit you? Yeah, I, this was one my nephew and I would play, and I, if I recall correctly, we both liked being the ship more, so it would be that kind of <laughs> like, well, yeah. who's going to be the guy on the ground this time? I mean, I also did the thing with the swivel chair and that death. Yeah, it, I think the, just as even a one-player fly a ship around and shoot things game and a demonstration of the Wii U controller 
uh, as that kind of, you know, gyroscopic. Again, I like motion controls. I like gimmicks. Like, uh, it's a good, and as Mikhail pointed out, there is, I don't think I got through uh, that much of the meat, but, you know, that, that I trusted, like, this isn't a throwaway game. Uh, but, yeah, it did just seem less, we never played the competitive modes, because that, or we maybe tried them once, and we're like, yeah, that's fine. Uh, but we tended to go for the cooperative anyway. Mm. The Zelda one, you really feel like you're, even if you're not yelling at each other as you often are, you're constantly kind of indirectly interacting with the other player. You've always got them in mind. Yeah. And this did not feel, and even just going back to Mm -hmm. it twice, uh, playing two games of it with a random student at the game center, we we could have uh, cooperated more, but I didn't see... You know, with the Zelda one, I could, I, I was like, oh yeah, I remember how we would get better at this quickly by, or with Mario Chase very much. Whereas this one, I'm like, how could we have communicated better? Like what really, and there probably is, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I, it doesn't, I think this is one where most people would agree with us. Like that, that's my guess that this is a, a fairly common take is that there's something more compelling about the Zelda one over the Metroid one, even though, you know, they're equally impressive in a way. Yeah, I don't think that the the different roles that the player types would play necessarily made the other roles more interesting or recontextualized them in any way. It's just one player could fly, the others were on the ground, but they were all kind of roughly doing similar things. Yeah, there's not an emergence to the to the asymmetry, which Nintendo, I mean, that's what makes a lot of this stuff, I mean, and when we get to the sort of hidden information competitive ones, what makes them unique and in some ways irreproducible, uh, you know, uh, is, is that aspect of asymmetry. It's one I want to kind of go back to a little bit if I start, if I try to write something about VR or the history of, because I do think the, mm. the, the like, oh, this is a window on the world and you're kind of moving around, right, you, you definitely should not strap the wii u uh pad to your head uh but in some sense you know that is what's going on in the zelda game yeah to that point one of the things we never mentioned back at the lobby actually is that the aspect ratio of the image on the tv screen would be affected by like the orientation of the uh the game pad and so um if you were to turn the game pad sideways then you would be seeing i guess what to our modern eyes would look like a uh, video taken on an iPhone or something like that. It would be like kind of a straight up and down 916 uh, aspect ratio. And then everything in between, it would very kind of cleanly rotate, which, you know, I think is an impressive display of this latency free communication between the gamepad and the Wii U, which is still impressive by modern standards, perhaps even more impressive because we've seen so many similar devices that can't get that latency just right. But moving on to the the next of our uh, one to five player games, this is called Pikmin Adventure. Um, this has a couple of uh, of different modes as well. You could play either co-op or versus. And this one is probably the closest to the original property of any of the um, different IPs that they integrate into this game. Um, this The challenge mode plays pretty much like a standard Pikmin Adventure, uh, very short stages under a pretty tight time limit, but you'd yeah. essentially be the character of the gamepad would be Olimar, who would command kind of a little army of Pikmin to go and attack enemies and to go and kind of open obstacles and stand on buttons and stuff like that, whereas any additional players would jump in. It's a very condensed, sort of abbreviated version of Pikmin, and it almost feels more like 
uh, a rudimentary sort of dungeon crawler action RPG thingy without uh, the leveling up. Uh, maybe more yeah. uh, akin to uh, a game like Gauntlet in the arcade or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I could see them proceduralizing something like this. Yeah. Any additional players that jump in on Wiimotes would play as their me dressed as a Pikmin and would essentially have the capabilities of a Pikmin to um, to go and help with the puzzle solving or the uh, the combat and stuff. But uh, less, I'd say less interesting of a assisting role than some of the games that we've already covered. Yeah, yeah. Olimar definitely has the most capabilities uh, because he can actually fling uh, his own little proper Pikmin around as well. Yeah, The other players just sort of have to whack away at uh, at the enemies. And they can be thrown by Olimar as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. There are some fun interactions, and I remember me and my nephew, you know, we played, again, I think it might be a little more fun with three or four people, but it's still, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I had, I did not actually play Diablo until fairly recently, and, or, or just kind of that, that straightforward, just keep mashing things, uh, Gauntlet, I guess, or Dandy, or, you know, those are, those are sort of the archetypal examples, and yeah, I think there's there's some asymmetry where yeah you have a little more uh, of that kind of emergent interaction I think but this is the thing is this kind of game design is really hard like these games are fine like these are not bad by any means and they put a lot mm-hmm. of work into them and they got meat and they're perfectly satisfying and if this is your one example of that kind of game it'd be fine but yeah nailing like truly interesting asymmetric play is you know. That's a high level. Most people don't try to do that. Uh, and there's a reason it, it is hard. Yeah, I never cared for this game all that much in particular. I'm not like a huge Pikmin fan to begin with. Like I I did end up playing through Pikmin 3 on the Switch and really enjoyed my time there. But again, like a lot of the appeal of Pikmin is this kind of long-term planning and kind of getting to know the space that you're stuck within and you know solving these kind of larger scale puzzles. So condensing it down into something that was a little bit more of like a you know think on your feet and and solve these like really rudimentary puzzles like it just i don't know i i didn't really get on with that one all that much uh next let's move into the competitive games i think these are the ones that people will probably have the strongest memories of mm. uh, the first of which is called mario chase this is a two to five player versus game the gamepad player who is playing as Mario, has to run and hide in moderately large, colorful courses from up to four Wiimote players who are playing as Toads, who um, who seek him out. Mario's given a little bit of a head start, and the Toads have to both find and catch him um, as he is both hiding and running away during this time. Um, Mario aims to avoid the Toads for two minutes and 30 seconds, and if any Toad tackles Mario, then the Toad team wins. Mm-hmm. Um, the gamepad player has significantly more information than any of the Toads do, uh, as the gamepad player has a uh, mini-map that gives the location of all the Toads at once. He's able to kind of keep track of where everybody is at um, at any time, whereas the Toads only have line of sight and a little indicator on the bottom of the screen that kind of tells you like distance wise how far you are from mario it's kind of a hot cold more than a you know it's certainly not like a crazy taxi arrow or something like that no, like you no, still no. have to kind of suss it out and triangulate between the group of you but it it really encourages teamwork amongst the toad team 
to uh to kind of triangulate where Mario is and converge on him from uh from all different sides and in particular the stages are very intelligently designed in that um usually they'll be divided into four quadrants that have very bright primary colors so if one of the toads sees Mario then they can call out you know oh he's She's in, in the green. yellow zone yeah yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> green going to yellow so, yeah yeah uh, very very fun. My kids have developed the habit now of using like uh, like uh, code names for the colors. Like they'll yell mustard or something like that. You know, <laughs> right? This is the problem: is Mario can overhear you. You need to put Mario in an isolation chamber. Mario, that's part of the intensity as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also like that it features. So the gamepad has a camera on it, and it features the face of. The person playing as Mario yeah, on screen, exactly. Uh, which oh god, right? Yes, you know, it's There's... another good chance to kind of get under the skin of the other players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad you pointed that out because it was would have been something we could have easily glossed over. Yeah, but it's a it's it's a very fun part. You can see the you see the Mario player <laughs> grimacing and like uh, you know when you're getting close and like yeah, yeah. It's 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 good stuff. Well, I was doing down at the game center, so it always just looked like uh, someone in a clinic video. Uh, but it was very funny nonetheless that there was because uh, I'll just just there's not much of an exciting anecdote here. But, you know, I brought this down because uh, I want to play the multiplayer stuff and, and just set it up on one of the uh, put the Wii U on kind of a central cart. So hopefully people would see me playing, you know, the Donkey Kong puzzle game or whatever. And I would, you know, uh, they'd be uh, like, oh, Nintendo Land, do you want to do the multiplayer? Mm -hmm. That did not happen. It, it did require some cajoling and some like, hey, you're working, but there's no one else here. So uh, but I got two of the librarians and someone else to, you know, sit down and play with me. And they were all, as I said, like they were OK with it, but they were kind of skeptical. But as soon as we played Animal Crossing, which we'll get to first, and that went over well, and then we played Mario Chase. Uh, and yeah, as soon as the little camera came on, there was just like, if there was one moment where, you know, we were all kind of now pals, like, there you go. That was, you know, that little moment where everyone just laughed at once when we saw that. And yeah, Mario, I mean, in that Awada S, they talk about how it is very much designed to be in an, an external uh, communicate right that that it's not about communicating within the game it's about yelling at each other mm -hmm. uh, from outside yeah. the game intentionally and there's something they were doing where they just have an understanding of human psychology in a way right they just play test these kind of in maybe circumstances that more approximate reality or something this just seems well tuned to make people have fun even if they don't know each other and they're all wearing face masks yeah this is uh, one of the two games that's being played the most in our household to this day oh yeah it's so simple yet we can't get enough of it uh the next of the versus games is um probably the one that in the reviews and stuff that i've watched and in my personal experience i've seen probably the most people say is the most successful of the games in this package uh this is luigi's ghost mansion this is a two to five player versus game at which the um, the gamepad player plays as a ghost in a small kind of Pac-Man maze-like level, who is um, who is hunting down one to four players who are playing as Mario Bros, who are playing as Luigi's essentially, uh, who all have flashlights and vacuum packs, just like in Luigi's Mansion. Yeah, the ghost is invisible 
on the television screen, but the ghost on the gamepad can see not only themselves, but everybody else. So it's a game about sneaking around this this little tiny labyrinth, trying to sneak up on people and not get flashed by their flashlight, not reveal yourself accidentally. There are all sorts of little traps that the ghosts can fall into. Obviously, if the if the players shine their flashlight at the ghost, uh, then the ghost will be stunned and then they can be captured by the uh, the vacuum packs. There are certain stages that have like lightning flashing outside. And if the ghost is in one of the hallways that is illuminated by the lightning, then the ghost will become temporarily visible and everyone will know where the ghost is. Although uh, just like the in the previous game, the ghost hunters have a few extra tricks up their sleeve as well to make their job a little bit more feasible. So as the ghost gets closer to any particular character, their Wiimote will start vibrating with higher and higher intensity. And so if you start to feel it vibrate, then uh, perhaps you end up kind of spinning around in circles, flashing your flashlight everywhere. You have to be careful because your flashlight has a limited battery, so you can't just have it on at all times. But uh, it's a a really, really successful and a really tense tug of war between these different characters with different capabilities. You know, oftentimes it'll come down to one character who says, the ghost is around me somewhere. I don't know where he is, but he's, uh, my controller is vibrating like crazy, spinning around, flashing his flashlight, and the, the ghost, you know, picks picks her opportunity to jump in and grab the grab the player and it's always uh, everyone yells and it's um it's it's a very good time i i really enjoy this one this is the other game that's being played the most in our household <laughs> we played it recently with uh, an ex canary rinse foramite that came to visit us uh, uh out of germany uh case up zero 1000 was his name on the canary rinse forums so me him and my two children and it got so intense like at one point like i think somebody got grabbed by the ghost and everybody just started screaming in unison because it was one of those really tense (laughs) moments where nobody wanted to get grabbed anymore i think a lot of it also has to do with the amazing sound design in this game where the sort of piano keys are building up and the, the, the 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 wii remotes are rumbling and you know uh the 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 music uh yeah this big court lands when the ghost grabs somebody uh it's uh of course it's not by any stretch of the imagination a scary game but everything does work together for it to be relatively tense yeah no it's well we uh this was how we discovered one of the wiimotes we have does not rumble anymore uh which had not been revealed before but (laughs) but the first game or two was like wow the ghost really has an advantage here keeps just nailing that one person but then we we figured (laughs) and so had to play uh unfortunately a a more limited we but we got to play three player and and yeah like both sides are scared for different reasons but it is it is tense no matter who you are yeah, just emergent asymmetry is is a very yeah. nerdy term that I just keep kind of coming back to with with the really good ones here. And honestly, playing this and Mario Chase and the Animal Crossing one have made me like, you know, if if I can figure out a way to work this into one of my classes, like you can get a Wii U for 120 bucks online. I could convince the game center to get two more Wii U's, or maybe I bring mine down in like five people you know, 15 students in a class, like, 
like playing these games in terms of just here, we're going to play this stuff for an hour and then talk about the game design so we can talk about kind of basic stuff that applies normally more to tabletop games, if anything, than to video games, you know, about uh, asymmetrical information, stuff like that. Mm. You know, there's this is a lesson in a box, uh, just and yeah. it's incredibly fun. Uh, there's a few um, additional courses on Luigi's Ghost Mansion as well that kind of change up the flow of gameplay. There are some that have uh, moving walkways on the floor that affect, that affect the living characters but do not affect the ghost. The ghost can be a little bit overpowered in those situations. And uh, the final course is a rooftop course, which has kind of a big open space with no obstacles, but it has a lot of, of Monitas, uh, the, uh, the kind of mascot character from the game, who are just flying around in various directions, spinning the flashlight around them. So in this case, the ghost has kind of unrestricted movement and can sneak up on characters in any number of ways, but the the boundaries, so to speak, are uh, very consequential and are always moving. So um, mm. it can be a little bit more of a uh, spatial, almost like a, almost like a bullet hell type of challenge of trying to kind yeah. of weave between yeah. these danger zones and, and remain undetected. This one is quite radically different from the other levels, yeah. And uh, we have we had yet to discover the fun of it. So for some reason, we kept sticking to the other stages. Well, worth mentioning also, if you play this with, I guess, I don't know, maybe two or three players, there are monitas uh, on the level, just kind of swinging around flashlights and you know botting their way around mm-hmm. uh, as a as a game balancing thing. But and I think they're kind of invulnerable. They don't they can't be taken down by the ghost. So. I do remember in one game, one player was kind of hugging pretty close to one. And this might be the person who didn't Mm. realize they didn't have vibration. So maybe that strategy is more important than that. Uh, But it, it, again, I'm I'm just sort of at this point thinking out loud of like how to, like there's, there's so much good game design stuff to talk about here as both a fun game that people would be happy to spend an entire class like trying all three of these and picking one of these and, you know, trying all the levels and all that, but then really talking and thinking through uh, what the principles are here of just designing this kind of, yeah, asymmetrical multiplayer local gaming mm. is is a challenge, but one that is, and one that is both about, you know, what's going on on the screen, but also people, people interacting. Yeah, Nintendo, on some level, they like people. They like weighing them for some reason. They like yeah, having them uh, dress in a big cardboard robot suit, but they like them. The next versus game is called Animal Crossing Sweet Day. It is set in a typical Animal Crossing village. There are two courses, actually, that you can play within that are kind of based around these different Animal Crossing settings. And um, the gamepad player controls two town guards. Uh, I believe these are the guard characters that they may have only been in the first Animal Crossing. They may have been through... They may have been in the game through New Leaf. I don't remember uh, whether they dropped off pretty quickly or whether they remained longer, but they are no longer in Animal Crossing as of the uh, newest game, as of the time of recording. Uh, but um, anyways, the gamepad player controls both of these guards at the same time, each using one of the two thumbsticks. So it's kind of a brother's a tale of two sons type of split brain <laughs> uh, coordination exercise. The other players uh, using the Wiimotes control villagers who basically run around the village and try to eat as much candy off of the ground and um, off of the trees as possible. The trees will have a little button in front of them. You have to stand on the button for a certain amount of time, and then the trees will drop their candy. Sometimes there are multiple buttons 
that have to be the multiple players have to kind of coordinate the press all at the same time. Um, but uh, as you eat candy, then your head will grow much larger and you will get slower, sweatier and redder, just like in real life. Your goal as a team is to accumulate 50 eaten candies between the lot of you. If you've got somebody on your back and you're moving pretty slowly because you've eaten too much candy, then you can choose to vomit candy on the ground behind you and uh, you will regain that speed. But of course, that will not count towards your collective total of the 50 needed candies. If you are tackled by one of the guards, then um, of course, I think you'll lose everything or most of the candy that your character is holding. Um, either way, it, it sets you back quite a way. So your primary goal is to kind of stay away from the guards and eat candy as you go. Um, it could be pretty tense. And of course, the the guards, even though they have ostensibly the easier job, have this kind of additional mental task of coordinating this um, the movement of their two hands separately to, uh, to corner and uh, take out these sweet tooth animals. Yeah, it can be a bit like patting. It can be a bit like patting your your head with one hand and rubbing yeah, exactly. your tummy with yeah. the other one, or circling your tummy with your hand. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's fun. It's good. I, I don't think it's uh, as compelling. Um, you know, just going by the uh, uh, amount of playtime we spend on this versus mm -hmm. uh, Ghost Mansion and Chase, it's not as compelling as the other two. But uh, yeah, every now and then we throw it on for variation, and we have a decently good time. This is funnily the one I like best, but I do think that's a minority. Like, I'm not surprised. And, and I don't think mm. other people really share that because I think what I like about it is not the lack of tension, but kind of the, the tension's more continuous. Like, on, on a on kind of a game design level, I, I incredibly admire the Mario Chase and Luigi's Ghost Mansion. Uh, but in terms of experience, I get a little tired, of, not tired of them bored, but just literally like, like there's a little too much tension and release of, you know, you you know nothing and then there he is and da da da. Whereas the Animal Crossing one's a little more, it's just maniacal the whole way through. Yeah, <laughs> I for whatever reason I like that. I like the way that you uh, throw up the candy when you're running away because right, the less the more candy you have, the slower you are. So if if you're getting chased by a guard, you I I don't know what the equilibrium point is, but if you have no candy, you are faster than the guards. Uh, mm -hmm. but uh, th there is also a time limit and it's, you know, if it expires, the guards win. Uh, yeah. It is a different, uh, I, it wasn't 50 when I played it, but I played it with fewer players. And if you play it in a... Oh, okay. I see. So it's like, I think 30 with three, and then it was the two-player mode. And, w and again, because I was playing this with my nephew a lot, uh, the Mario Chase and Luigi's Ghost Mansion, I don't think work quite as well as a two-player game. Whereas the Animal mm. Crossing one actually works great as a two-player game because the the mechanic is now instead of you're ca carrying them around, uh, you have to get these candies and then uh, puke them up into uh, these big scoring <laughs> oh. areas around the thing. And so you're often just like being chased and like just sort of drive by vomiting into a dish as you run by <laughs> these two guys with a knife and a fork. And, you know, it's a good time for everyone. Yeah. Um, and I... I really do. I like playing both roles, but I really do like the pat your head, rub your stomach thing. Like I always am amused. Uh, there's yeah. one of my favorite games that came out of the first year of the NYU Game Center Incubator is uh, Soft Body, which is a PS4 and I think other things game. But yeah, you're controlling these two totally separate 
uh, things in a basically a bullet hell puzzle game. Uh, and it, it breaks my brain, but it's, it's fun to, you know, try to make that part of my brain do stuff. Uh, it's, you know, <laughs> or, or the Stroop test. I remember even on the, the Nintendo DS, uh, brain age. I don't know if people, you know, the one where it's like, it's the word blue, but it's in red and you have to say it mm. out loud. <laughs> and like, yeah, yeah, that's I, I have a soft spot for like, yeah, let's just skip the middleman and just drive an ice pick into my head and let's see what happens. <laughs> and there is yeah. an aspect of the the thing is, is what I like about it is that you can be bad at it and still play the game. It's just that both of your guards are going to be moving symmetrically like they yeah, both are yeah. going to both <laughs> move up into the right and then they're both going to move up into the left. You kind of lack those uh, pincer movements then. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then occasionally and if you the more separate you keep them the more of the screen you can see. So it's also yeah. very yeah, that's another very interesting valuable strategy. To, yeah, it yeah. zooms out then, yeah. But then you can't really pincer them. I think right. just trying to rationalize it why we give this uh relatively less playtime is um among the people that have to work together, you know, the other players that just watch the TV screen, I guess there's less communication. Yeah. It's more like everybody just That's goes true. off and do- does their own stuff. Uh, there's no easy way to tell where the other players are and to coordinate your actions. You just sort of run across each other. Then you see one player standing on one of those tiles. Oh, okay, I'll hop on the other one and let's shake some candy loose mm-hmm. off the tree. But it's kind of more happenstance. You know, there's no real coordinated action there. There's a little bit of yelling out, like, just get one more, you know, uh, one person kind of being the spontaneous bait and then the other people realizing that and scooping stuff up. Yeah. It's just like, like, get get over here, get over here. But then nobody knows where here is because unlike in Mario Chase, where there's like colored off sections, there's no easy way to say where you are. Yeah, Yeah, it's a... Of course, you can watch it. You can look at each other's screen, but still, yeah. It's sometimes tough to tell because there's less in the way of defined uh, different areas and landmarks. true. Yeah, I can definitely see... I mean, if I had kids and, like, we're all screaming and playing these games, I could definitely see the other ones being more more, uh, repeat fun. But I'm I'm, I'm glad this one has a different tone even... You know, I'm I'm glad all three of them kind of use the the hidden information of the gamepad in in somewhat different ways. And even if this is probably by consensus the, the weakest of them, I think, uh, it does use it in a way that's, I think, more different than uh, mm. the Mario and Luigi are from each other. Looking back at these versus games, they all have a little bit of a flavor of Pac-Man to them uh, in their inspiration and mm-hmm. kind of almost approaching Pac-Man or different aspects of Pac-Man across the three games. And I think that this one probably kind of fits the closest to the Pac-Man model. Kind of makes me wonder what a Pac-Man game would be like if you had this dynamic of of uh, slowing down as you ate things and then being able to vomit things up and have hmm. those Pac-Dos just kind of deposited in one area that, uh, you know, you can zoom around the map quickly and then go back and pick up your your big kind of pile of dots that you left behind somewhere. Um, that's that's a great kind of thing you bring up, yeah. It's, yeah. of course, uh, on on the GameCube with the, the GBA link cables and everything. Uh, oh, yeah. Coming with R Racing Revolution or something it was called like that. Mm-hmm. The uh, Or what was it? R, yeah, some, so, so a Namco Razor it was. It came with Pac-Man Versus. I think all three of these competitive games uh, on Nintendo Land have a little bit of Pac-Man Versus in them. Yeah, you know? totally. Like that uh, asymmetrical multiplayer. Yeah. 
that makes a lot of sense. Is I totally forgot that that is kind of the the I I love Nintendo, but I don't love them enough to have four Game Boy Advances attached to a GameCube. But I've always <laughs> wanted to do. You know, the full Zelda Four Swords and the... I mean... Yeah, same. This is... Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, Pac-Man Versus, yeah, all that. Yeah. These are, these are irreproducible or, you know, uh, you can't just emulate this. This this is something yeah. where that's a very specific play experience. And yeah, that makes sense. And and a lot of the, yeah, the ways people have played with Pac-Man, it would be very funny to see like a, you know, 1980-looking Pac-Man demake with this rule, uh, I would... Mm-hmm. delighted to to play that game i mean it is worth mentioning on the subject matter that the uh, game boy advance link cable is probably the earliest progenitor of the same type of thing that the wii u is doing in these types of games you get the second screen experience and yeah. oftentimes used to communicate hidden information to certain players you saw that especially in like four swords adventures where characters on the tv screen would enter a cave and then the cave would only be visible on the screen of the Game Boy Advance that was connected. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to see them kind of play around with similar ideas uh, that early on and continue mm. to kind of experiment and iterate uh, so many generations later. Yeah. You see it in a wonderful one-on-one as well. And uh, we yeah, exactly. like uh, yeah. going into a building and then seeing the bi- inside of the building in on the game path and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think we're going to move a bit quicker through the uh, single player games, but there might be a couple that we want to drill down on a little bit further. Um, but for the most part, I'd say that they're probably a little bit more kind of like simple in concept. Yeah. Takamaru's Ninja Castle comes next. It is a single player game, although like all the single player games, anyone else who has a Wiimote can assist in various ways. In this case, Wiimote players can point at the screen and freeze most targets. Mm. The, this is essentially a shooting gallery type of yeah. game. Where it's the kind game, of like a light gun game almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The gamepad player tilts the gamepad onto its side uh kind of like that um that video that demonstration video that was uh shown off right when the wii u was unveiled of yeah somebody kind of flicking ninja stars from the uh from the gamepad and that's exactly what's going on here there's yeah kind of a, a paper crafty type of japanese world of, of ninjas and um and other types of enemies and you like origami folded ninjas yeah, it's funny because we recently spoke about uh, the arcade game Shinobi uh, on Kanerins on an earlier issue, uh, and that has a bonus stage in there where you, from a first-person view, sort of toss shuriken at on running oncoming ninjas in okay, there, yeah. and this really gave me flashbacks of that. Um, and I think this game gets, uh, yeah, it doesn't get enough love because for this type of shooting gallery. Yeah, light gun style game. I think it's uh, it's very well designed. The challenges are the targeting challenges and the way you go about stuff, and then the boss battles in there. You get these uh, different special attacks that you can do and throw bombs. Uh, a, a nice little amount of stages you can make your way through. I think this is pretty good fun, actually. And I sometimes forget that it's there, and then when I, after a long time, fire it up again. Oh yeah, this is actually really good fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I it is a genuinely satisfying, like, sliding your fingers on the pad to, you know, uh, launch the yeah, stars. Yeah, and seeing the, the paper shuriken thought into uh, elements in the background and everything, it's uh, it's pretty damn satisfying. It's satisfying, exactly. And, and that makes it the kind of thing that every time you go back to it, it's like, it's not just a gimmick, it actually is. The controls are precise enough that you can, you could get good at this, and... 
Yeah, it's funny, but right, I, I, I totally forgot about all the assist stuff, which again is is very. Mm-hmm. It makes this a great family package in, in ways that I didn't really end up exploring. Uh, I don't really recall uh, doing that when I would play this with my nephew. I think we would just focus on the explicitly multiplayer games. But uh, this is kind of the heyday of, I mean, Super Mario Galaxy is the one I usually think of. But did they have, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I always like when Nintendo has the what if you have a little kid there who wants to do stuff option. Yeah, I, I'd I'd kind of agree with um with a lot of your assessments. I think that the verb set uh, that this game gives you the just the pure action of throwing a shuriken at the TV screen is um is enjoyable. But I don't know if the game structure really does enough for me to keep coming back to it time and time again. I'm also a little bit like a lot of touchscreen games kind of hit me in this way. But like I'm I'm kind of a neat freak and perfectionist, and so I don't like. I don't like touching the screen too much with my finger because it leaves smudges and fingerprints. And then I don't like doing any of these like high intensity or kind of fast velocity games with the stylus because then I don't, I don't want to scratch the screen. So it's one of those where it's like, I kind of have to like overcome my own personal demons whenever I play this game as well. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely use my fingers to swipe in this one. I don't want to be scratching like an idiot with the stylus. Yeah. 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 I, uh, it, the one thing I'll say, right, I mean, it's not one I, I, I came back to. I was like, oh, yeah, this is fun. And I played it twice and come back to it at some point in the mm-hmm. future. But because when I'm talking about, you know, I've ended up being the kind of, you know, VR semi defender uh, at some point to the game center. And, and my angle is very much about, well, it's just the revenge of the Wii, which isn't the whole story, but it's kind of the side I care the most about with the, my, my beloved mini golf and table tennis games and such and Beat Saber mm-hmm. is... You know, it's the Wii, but now you get to see the thing as you're swinging the thing. Like, great. And because of the way this game is designed with the two screens, this this actually is like, you know, the, the thing with something like Wii Sports is you do have to use your imagination to bridge, you know, what is what you see in your hand and what you see on the screen. Whereas here, the interaction is for an even nerdier word than I'm using before, diegetic. The next game, I think, is absolutely wonderful. I love yeah. this game a lot. This is Donkey Kong's Crash Course. Yeah. This is another one-player game with some really light assists from other players. They can point their Wiimotes at the screen and slow down certain elements of this. But this is essentially a big kind of Rube Goldberg-like obstacle course. Um, you pilot this uh, this this very fragile um, little cart down a um, down a very intricate almost kind of like a like a marble path if you've ever yeah. seen those at like a science center or like even the yeah, ones you can yeah, build yeah. yourself as like a child playset um with all sorts of different ramps and all sorts of different types of like moving platforms and stuff but the clever thing about this is that the it is controlled through the tilting of the gamepad and all of the different like obstacles that you run up against are all controlled through various manipulations of the gamepad so some of them that have little propellers underneath that ri- raise a platform, require you to blow into the into the microphone, and um, you know, it's little stuff like that, or that require you to kind of hit certain buttons. And the compelling thing about it is that, like, you want to get through the course as quickly as possible, but if you move too fast, then your cart is uh, cart's so fragile, like it's it's mm-hmm. really just being held it's got together. Your face with, on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah I don't want that to get it's but. so fragile that it's uh you know it it can break if you if you 
move too quickly if you uh, if you crash into anything too quickly. So you know you're kind of incentivized to be very careful with it. But at the same time, once you once you memorize these two courses, then you can really fly through this thing, and it becomes really impressive. And I, I did get really good at this. It kind of bugs me that uh, of all of the Donkey Kong games, the original Donkey Kong arcade game, which is the one that this is based off, might be the only one that doesn't have carts in it. Uh, <laughs> so I think if you're making a Donkey Kong themed game based off of escorting a cart down a dangerous course, then you could probably choose something that's a little bit more kind of like thematically coherent. But uh, I think that visually it's very readable and very pleasant to look at. So uh, I can't be too upset about that. Um, I, I really love this one. I, I ended up getting really good at it back in the day, and I could just kind of tear through these courses. It's very rewarding once you get it right because of how yeah. high, sta- high stakes the uh, the general course is. But uh, yeah, I I really love this one. How about, how about both of you? It has a sort of a super monkey ball type quality to it. It does, it's yeah. This sort of, you know, like a, a simple dexterity, uh, dexterity type of challenge that gets increases in complexity due to just the course design um yeah it's it's very uh, it's very um appealing and something we keep coming back to, back to as well you know when some when when um nintendo land is in the machine and uh you know we're kind of done with playing multiplayer games uh yeah we just t- take turns and try to see who gets the the furthest or we can actually clear the clear the game yeah, I love it. It's trials, but you have a big wheel. And you have the <laughs> reflexes of a six-year-old who has a big wheel. Yeah. Blowing on a mic is a very pre-pandemic uh, game activity. But besides that, <laughs> uh, so I played more of this when I was back home. But I really did like the, um, you know, it's showing it pretty magnified. You can zoom in and out a little. But you're basically looking at it on the gamepad, at least mm-hmm. until you have it memorized, maybe. And you could just sort of enjoy seeing the whole Rube Goldberg machine at once. But... Generally, the player wants to look at that and they don't need to look at the big screen. They don't really need to see, you know, the whole thing. But it looks so cool. And anyone walking by, like I definitely got I, that was one I I put on first when I went down to the games here when I was trying to just kind of see if any random students would come by because uh, it definitely got people just watching, you know, that that there's it's a it's a wonderful kind of exhibition. If you were to put, you know, one of these games in some MoMA exhibit. You could definitely uh, have have people play in this, and then everyone else would would see the big wonderful thing, and they'd see them as this little tiny fragile tricycle that keeps dying. And it's you know it's separated time wise into like very tight little not laps but sections and all of that in terms of how it uh, scores you. So right, very very speed running oriented. If you if you smush yourself, you can you know start back where you left off and figure it out from there. I forget what. I, are there a X number of lives or is it just you start at the last checkpoint? I don't remember either. I think there might be a number of lives. Yeah, that would be my only. I mean, I, I, when we get to the Yoshi one, there's there's a difficulty curve mm-hmm. issue there as well. That'd be my only. Mm. Uh, I forget if that's the case, but but um, I would hope, you know, it's less of a hassle with this one because it is fun to play the beginning of the course once you've got it down. Uh, yeah. No matter how many times, uh, I guess. Getting over with Bennett Foddy is another comparison point, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, if you like those games, it this would be the one that I would I, I would like them to just put this as a I don't know a five dollar thing on the Switch or something. Like I yeah. would totally just play this again as a portable thing. 
this is such kind of like a dense constellation of the features that they built into the gamepad though that like this wouldn't work as is on the switch because like the switch doesn't have a microphone it's not important to this one it doesn't have a camera like there's so many of these weird things that like nintendo used to pack all of their systems with all these different weird little features and they'd find you know a couple of good uses throughout a generation maybe not enough to justify the cost of it and we can see them kind of stripping back a lot of those weird little features on the switch but uh you know this one definitely kind of made the most of um of a lot of those Mm. Uh, one of the things i really appreciate about this one is that the loss condition isn't like a binary thing either like you can crash and and destroy your your little cart pretty easily but um as you mentioned just kind of like trials it's all about kind of getting to the next checkpoint where you can retry from and try that next little leg of the leg of the course there are ways to completely like screw yourself over without dying but you can do Mm. it in such a way where it's like uh like um you can get your you can loop your um the body of the car underneath the course and have like one wheel that's like hanging on up above and you kind of do the uh you kind of do the mental calculations like is it possible for me to write myself can i just like like ride under the course and get to the next checkpoint and then kill myself there like you know it's not just like you are you're either fine or you've crashed like there are these interesting in-between points as well that make you kind of rethink the physics of the uh particular challenges you're going up against a lot of moments which are i don't know if you remember the uh simpsons episode where various uh townspeople become substitute teachers and jasper the old man with the long beard gets it stuck in the pencil sharpener and his only solution is to keep <laughs> turning the thing and it goes further in and he kind of grunts each time and i had a lot of that yeah like just i am a dead man walking and for some reason i'm unwilling to give up but this this poor cart is just dangling in this untenable position and i keep trying to wiggle these controls and it's just obviously getting worse and worse it's very funny um a delightful little sadistic game let's move on to the next one i probably won't have a ton to say about this one this is captain falcon's twister race this is a single player racing game um in which others can assist by removing obstacles by pointing at the screen um but essentially it is a racing game kind of in a standard f-zero perspective on the tv screen um but on the game pad it is like a top down uh, you don't even actually see the course itself it's kind of like a map screen almost um but you you control the game by tilting the game pad holding it vertically like a phone and then tilting it kind of back and forth to weave between obstacles and stuff and uh yeah. i find this one to be both very dull and very challenging weirdly and um it just doesn't really appeal to me at all i think it's not bad uh it's just weird that you of course you don't use any buttons so there's no acceleration button so the only way to Mm -hmm. really gain speed in this game is to keep hitting those uh, sort of speed boost uh, strips on the on the courses and there's lots of obstacles i don't think it's 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 bad it can be fairly enjoyable it's just it's just fairly enjoyable and never goes beyond that where you're actually having a fantastic time playing it or uh, get too much into it at least for me so this is the uh one of the weaker games on the compilation for me mm-hmm. and i say that as a massive f-zero fan yeah jesse anything from you Nah, pretty much the same although it does like you have to have this game just on the big checklist of like the lateral thinking, what are we going to do with this gamepad? 
right? And and just mm. like you pretty much, if you don't have the Ninja Star game, you'll have something akin to that. You're definitely going to have some game where you're using the tablet basically to steer in some way as a big controller, uh, whether it's like in you know Mario uh, Kart 8 where you're just using it like the big wheel or whatever or here. I I don't got any better ideas, but yeah, I, this isn't one I'm going to go back to. Like, there's nothing wrong with huh. it. And th- I don't if know. If you do like it, though, there are quite a lot of courses you can try to clear. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if the, you do get into it. The assist of the other player can uh, remove obstacles does sound like that would be kind of a fun interaction. Um, and, you know, screaming at someone to please get that out of the way or whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, never never actually tried that. So as of the time of recording, this is the final F-Zero game. We'll oh, see God. if we can revise mm. that statement at any point in the future. Don't say that, Ryan. Don't say, don't say that. Don't say final. <laughs> the most recent. <laughs> uh, the next game is Balloon Trip Breeze, uh, which is another like game that's fairly faithful to its, um, the property that it comes from. This feels very much like a balloon fight game. Uh, you are essentially going on a, it's a side-scrolling game where you are kind of navigating a little balloon fight fellow through yeah. you know various kind of floating obstacle courses but it is interestingly controlled instead of by tapping a button over and over kind of like standard joust controls you flick the gamepad uh touchscreen in various directions to like affect the way that the little gusts of wind blow on your character so you can use it to very kind of uh very analog very um you know very carefully slow down around certain obstacles and you get like a really precise amount of control here um i think it feels quite good it's not again like one of my absolute favorites on the list but it's definitely one that i've spent a lot of time with and um i end up really enjoying it it reminds me a lot of uh yeah a bunch of nintendo ds action games uh, mm. kirby's canvas curse a game called soul bubbles as well oh yeah i used to play quite a lot on the nintendo ds yeah, and I'm very faithful to the bonus game of Balloon Fight, which I think was even called Balloon Trip. It also helps that it boasts that same fantastic melody uh, rendered yeah. uh, or rearranged in a in a in an orally pleasing fashion. Uh, yeah, this is one of the ones I was I really look forward to going back to because I've always uh, liked this game because I think before I played the Wii U, I think actually playing this was like oh I. And I do want to get this, like just as a little nudge, because one of my favorite diamonds in the rough when I did one of my first kind of like, well, let's dig through old 80s games and see if I can find stuff is uh, Hello Kitty World, uh, which is a Mm. Hello Kitty themed remake of Balloon Kid, which is a Game Boy game. The Hello Kitty ones on Nintendo. Uh, And I think they're basically the same game, but, you know, it's colorful and it's got Hello Kitty. So I played that one, but it's pretty much this. I mean, it's this kind of structure with different enemies and you have the two balloons there's actually more kind of like you're landing on the ground and doing stuff and then going back up it's a little not not adventure but a little bit um but this very much a remake of balloon kid slash hello kitty world uh and but with that very precise analog stylus control also you're poking the you know you uh you can uh, poke the stylus at the board to pop obstacles which i Totally forgot about when I died, just slamming into a wall that I did not know how to get. <laughs> but yeah, this one, it's repetitive. Like, you're doing the same thing over and over. So mm-hmm. I don't think I could get uh, deep into it. But 
it is definitely one of the ones I would go back to anytime I, I boot this up and play at least once. The next one I think is going to be probably, or I think in my observation of the kind of critical consensus around this game is probably the most controversial. I've seen a lot of people rate this as one of the best and a lot of people rate this as one of the worst. So I'm kind of curious to see where we land on this. This is called Yoshi's Fruit Circuit. Um, This is a one player game, again, with assists from other players. Other players can collect fruit while the Yoshi cart is moving, which kind of defeats the purpose of the game. But regardless, makes it a little bit easier for players who probably uh, may might not be as uh, uh, as skilled um, as others. But this is a, a very interesting game. Uh, on the television screen, there's kind of a what looks like a miniature golf course. It's a, it's a very kind of minimalist uh, type of course, uh, just kind of, you know, grass background with little plates of fruit and then an exit, sometimes enemies, sometimes other obstacles. There's a starting point as well. On the gamepad, the only thing that you can see is the starting point, and you have to basically draw a line on the gamepad that navigates Yoshi through all of the fruits, sometimes in order, uh, that you can only see on the TV screen and then navigate him to the exit. So You have to sort of look at patterns uh, in the ground as well to sort of, uh, yeah, get reference points and stuff. But it's it's, it's definitely like if you've ever tried to to draw something by copying it off of like a off of another source like and then yeah. you end up with the proportions being all wrong you can you can start to see the challenge here it's it's kind of interpolating information that you can see very clearly and you understand exactly what you want to have happen but but it doesn't always you know it's so often that you just miss a miss the fruit by just like a little tiny hair and you end up frustrated with yourself and yeah. I, I find it quite fun I, I really enjoy this one <laughs> good good yeah I mean this gets decried uh, a lot this uh, this one uh, but I'm also yeah I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of this it's not my most favorite game on there but I find it um, I find some that it has some inherently satisfying qualities for me uh, just nailing that perfect path grabbing all the fruit and then going through the door uh, with the satisfying sort of gobbles and gulps of Yoshi mm-hmm. when he picks up the fruit along the way and the sort of chuggy engine noise that the, the Yoshi cart makes. Um, and I'm also one of the f- uh, few people that I know that is uh, a, a, quite a big fan of Yoshi's story for the Nintendo 64, uh, especially playing that for score, like trying to optimize the levels and getting the highest happy melon uh, scores and all that sort of stuff. I I played a lot of, I put a lot of time uh, into that back in the days and the music in Yoshi's Fruit Circuit kind of brings those themes back again, that uh, that main melody of uh, Yoshi's story as well, which uh, warms my heart. So yeah, uh, I I find quite a lot to enjoy in Yoshi's Fruit Circuit. My only issue with it was kind of the difficulty curve in that I got through the first 12 levels without a hitch and then got to the 13th and died three times and it was over. Yeah. Where it was just as soon as all of the fruit were moving, it becomes this timing game, which is just this entirely Mm -hmm. quantum difficulty leap. That is the main issue for me, I think, is that it would be if I were to try to get good at it. I don't think it maybe it lets you start on later stages or something, but it would have the like, this is boring and then it's too and then it's hard. Yeah, no, I do agree with that, actually. Yeah. Um, but the, the the activity I enjoyed a lot because it it falls into that category of like the the sort of 
cognitive just poked my head with an ice pick games of, uh, you know, Wilmot's Warehouse is another one in that category recently. Mm -hmm. But just like what's going on is is you're testing the ability of my brain to kind of put these pieces of information together. And there's a lot of landmarking. Like I am not visually gifted uh, or spatially gifted, but because there's that like, you know, uh, golf course, baseball field, checkerboard or some sort of pattern to the mm -hmm. grass. You can work that out and you can kind of butt wiggle. There's, there is some resource management of like, if you're not sure you nailed it, you can like make a little circle or something and you'll get less points right. uh, because, it, you know, your fuel at the end or maybe you'll run out. That was one of the ways I died at the end was I was like, OK, I, I, these things are moving around. So I'll just, you know, kind of do this in little epicycles. And I did not have enough Yoshi gas for that. Uh, but. <laughs> I like, yeah, I mean, the core use, you know, the gamepad is is neat. And I, I like I like this idea. And I just wish, yeah, there was a little more uh, freedom in it being less linear in terms of the puzzle levels. I agree that I don't think it's as strong once the once the collectibles and even the enemies start moving around, because there's really no way to predict like what is going to be where at any given time. So if you want to collect like a a fruit that is orbiting in a circular pathway, you essentially have to draw like a half circle going in the opposite direction because you'll catch it at some point during its right. rotation, which, you know, is another interesting positional test for yourself. But it's it just feels less like less honest than the uh, original challenge. Let's move on to the last game. This last game is called Octopus Dance. And uh, this is a rhythm game. So, of course, being a rhythm game, this goes back to Nintendo's core rhythm franchise, uh, Game & Watch, right? Is that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's I, it. I don't know. Hey, I don't know it. why they didn't choose to do a rhythm ten Tengaku type of game. But, um, I mean, I guess they've pretty heavily hopped off of that boat since. So, uh, maybe the writing was on the wall even as far as uh, back then, unfortunately. <laughs> it's it's more intelligent systems than core Nintendo that's as well. That's true. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's no yeah. Pokemon or anything in here either. So, <laughs> no. But yeah, Octopus Dance. This is an interesting uh, one-player game. Again, others can assist. I find the assist to be very useful in this one. They can they can gain additional hearts, which kind of float by in bubbles in the background, so that the player who's actually playing can mess up more times. Um, and they can uh, minimize some distractions uh, that can interfere with the readability of the screen. So that could be very useful. But anyways, it's a rhythm game in which a player must operate the thumbsticks of the gamepad to mimic the arm movements of an instructor. So it's a kind of see and repeat, parappa the rapper type of game, but it's all done in like arm movements, you know, high, medium, low with each arm uh, going in different rhythms and different directions. And um, I, I find this to be quite fun as well. Like I, I ended up getting really into this one. It does some clever things where the the view from the gamepad is typically behind the characters where the view from the TV screen, which is more kind of like watchable and fun for the audience, is from the front of the players. Uh, but of course, if you're if you're watching the TV screen as the gamepad player, then your controls will be reversed because, you know, the left hand and the right hand uh kind of view again yeah. from the opposite direction. So you'll want to pay attention to the gamepad, although sometimes the camera does swivel around and you'll need to refocus on the tv instead so it's a kind of clever way that of gets me a lot integrating that yeah. and then another really fun integration of the gamepad technology occasionally a submarine will drive by in the background with the 
with the player's actual face being captured by the camera, <laughs> kind of set to look like it is like bobbing back and forth with the music, which is uh, really fun. Just makes it look like you're like the real person is dancing along with the music. So um, yeah, I, I I enjoy this game. It's not like again, it's not like a stupendous rhythm game on the grand spectrum of of rhythm games in the past, but it's a uh, it, it's an enjoyable. Uh, little distraction for a while. <laughs> yeah, for me, this is probably my least favorite game out of the whole bunch. It doesn't help that I'm not a massive rhythm game player either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, I always feel like it's kind of like this whole Simon Says thing, basically, pretty much, uh, when, when it comes to rhythm games. So it doesn't really appeal to me in that way, even though, uh, I, yeah, m- the, my choice of music is often rhythmic. Yeah, and then maybe that prevents me also, like, this has a very early difficulty spike where the path gets reversed, uh, and it, which never fails to throw me off, especially because I don't play it a lot. So every time I do give it a, a, a half-hearted attempt, that immediately throws me off and I fail very quickly. And I never feel compelled to actually grit my teeth and try to get good at it so it this this is one of the most uh this this is the probably the least played game for me in a whole on the whole compilation yeah i did not remember this one and maybe it is because the octopus from game and watch is not not your favorite nintendo character not, not in my top three uh but <laughs> i like this a little more than i remembered which was not at all you know i enjoyed the gimmicks i enjoyed the ink i enjoy the flip and it's a perfectly nice rhythm game. Although, yeah, I, I mean, not that I would want it to use a more Guitaru Manny kind of like really getting into the whole analog joystick thing. Uh, but I, it, this is the one where it was not clear to me which boxes was checking off in a sense. Like, I guess it does, you know, there's the camera showing you in the background. Like, it's got fun stuff and it's, it's you know, as I said toward the beginning of the thing, like, you know, everyone agrees half of these are bangers and we agree on half of which half that is. And I could totally see this being someone's, you know, one of their favorites. But yeah, I yeah. it's 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 solid, but it didn't do much for me. I mean, if we remember that the the Wii U was the first Nintendo console that had dual analog sticks uh, by default, mm. uh, I guess that was the novelty that they were showing off. But of course, by this point, like it's certainly not a novelty in the video gaming space. It could have been a PS1 game. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had my humongous, horrifying plastic add-on for my uh, uh, 3DS XL so I could play Monster Hunter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. I, uh, you know, twin joysticks on Nintendo. I would also pack. argue that the, the GameCube's uh, C-nub is a second uh, analog yeah, stick, as, as, okay. as, un, as unideal <laughs> as it is, as it might be. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. Well, but it, they are symmetrical. No, I think Ryan's... 100% right that that's got to have been the the logic right that is that yeah. is what it yeah, is yeah. showing off Definitely. is uh, i guess that in animal crossing uh just this kind of symmetrical layout where you know the shoulder buttons for you know left controls the left guy right controls the right guy type of thing let's hop over to our forum we have some correspondence from our community buscalili from the forum says for my money nintendo land deserved to be up there with Wii sports the way it used the gamepad to provide unique asynchronous multiplayer sessions uh, right there in one room was wonderfully fun. Mario Chase with the little face of the player smirking in the corner of the TV was so simple but endlessly fun. The Luigi's Mansion game provided excellent potential for messing with friends. 
the Animal Crossing one got my heart genuinely racing. I think Nintendo Land's legacy lives on not in Nintendo Switch multiplayer offerings, but in online games like Dead by Daylight. Eric Bergerman from the forum says, The Luigi's Mansion game from Nintendo Land brought me and my friends a lot of joy shortly after the release of the Wii U, and I was certain that Nintendo had figured out a new huge innovation game design. And today, almost a decade later, it seems as if the idea of of asymmetrical controls peaked with uh, with that little mini game, no more sparrows from the forum says Game and Wario exists. It aims to accomplish the same goals, albeit with more focus on pick up and play rather than sprawling journey like Pikmin Adventure or The Legend of Zelda Battle Quest. There's even a bit of overlap with both games having arrow shooting and top down vehicular navigation. So, why is it that Nintendo Land tends to be ignored when my sister and I have an itch to play something on the Wii U? It doesn't allow for nearly as much creativity as Game & Wario. Nintendo Land feels like an amusement park that it is. A bunch of fun ideas, but if you do anything against the rules, you'll pay the consequences. Game & Wario is a little bit more loose with its regulations, but in turn, some rides are a bit shakier. Both are worth attending, but since they're so close together, neither stands out as much as they should. Which is a very interesting point, the kind of uh, proximity of uh, Game & Wario as a similar kind of minigame collection as well. I'm curious if yeah. either of you have any thoughts on that specifically. I really love Game, Game & Wario as well, by the way. And uh, it has some of the best use of the uh, of the gamepad as a second screen that I can, uh, yeah. off the top of the head, think of on the, on the Wii U, especially some games. But I think they're fundamentally quite different types of minigame compilations. For starters... Uh, I think Game of Warrior is more single-player focused. There are a bunch of multiplayer games, but they function very differently in that it's more of a pass-the-gamepad-around type of experience generally, whereas uh, Nintendo Land has everybody join in with controllers of different uh, sort of configurations at the same time. If you look, for example, the Pictionary game gets a lot of play in our households, the the, the Fruit Thief game in Game of Warrior and... Uh, the other one, the the the, the frunk throwing mini game as well, but yeah, it's more like away your turn and then do something, you know, or or uh, one player holding the gamepad and the other player uh, the other players participating without uh, an input method, but just by the with their voice only. I yeah, I was gonna. I, I want to now go back to Game and Wario, and the only reason I didn't was because uh, I should play Nintendo Land until this episode's over. I mean, until the episode started. But I, I do plan on, now that I got my Wii U set back up again, uh, I'm immediately going to play the the one where you're playing WarioWare, but your Demon Mom. I forget what that one's called, but that oh, is one yeah. of gamer, the... Gamer, it's called, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, one of the greatest games ever made. Yeah, just a very, <laughs> that's another one that I want to make sure we have down at the Game Center because it is like, okay, maybe you don't need to own this and play this constantly, but like 15 minutes with, you know, a few of these games is going gonna, is gonna to open your mind to some very, you know, the the person right before Eric Bergman was saying, you know, that that Luigi's Mansion is where these kind of this asymmetry peaked. And I don't know if I'd agree with that, but it certainly is an exemplar and an exemplar yeah. that, you know, when I uh, more in the tabletop side, well, when I'm teaching intro to game design, my focus is just like this game takes 25 minutes and it hits one idea and it gets out. It can't stop or block it or, or you know. These are very good equivalents of like if you had a kid who you want to 
grew up to be smart about game design. <laughs> like you should play all these with it. Let's move over to some three-word reviews. These are uh, we put a call for three-word reviews for all of the games that we cover uh, on the day of recording on our Twitter as of right now. I don't know if that's going to change anytime in the near future. If we're going to have to start sourcing three-word reviews from whatever platform we all end up migrating to if things take a turn for the worse on Twitter. But as of right now, we are at Kane and Rince on Twitter. We are playing on as the ship sinks. So anyways, let's, uh, let's read some three-word <laughs> reviews. Jesse, if you wouldn't mind starting us off. Uh, Nick Tendo says, never seen again. Danny Spiteri says, simply loved it. Spencer Saunders says, plump with candy. Tree Smurf says, perfect multiplayer fun. And Josh101 says, needs more love. This takes us to our personal summaries. Jesse, how would you uh, kind of reconcile all of your thoughts on these various games compiled into this one weird, ludicrous, packed with the Wii U package? Um, I kind of feel like I said it a lot of it, or, you know, I, I admire this very much and think it's it's the kind of thing where, especially in my position of, you know, you got a half hour to show someone something that's fun and will teach them something about games. Uh, this is an immensely valuable package. Uh, and I wasn't kidding about, you know, thinking of getting another Wii U for the Game Center, which is obviously a good sign. That being said, it's not something I, I now I'm going to come back to constantly, but it did. And it was nice having been away from it for so long and coming back to it. And it really just the whole theme park setting and all that really just reminded me how odd it is that uh, the Nintendo Switch is just like this Quonset hut in terms of like the store, like it was just slapped up when in 2016 and like they haven't, you know, it's just a bunch of rectangles. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, but this, this <laughs> like super like orgy of skeuomorphism that I guess you see with like clubhouse games uh, is a modern example of that, but not in the right. This reminds me of, of just how the Wii U transfer and the Wii store and all of that were in and of, and you know, the, the, everybody votes, you know, and now going on a tangent on a tangent, but it's all part, and this was part of, you know, the Miiverse and, and having all the, we didn't talk at all, we didn't have time about the everybody hates me or whatever it was called, but, you know, the whole Wii U multiverse and, uh, but that's all a big part of it. And, and yeah, I think as a product, it just exemplifies the Wii U, which is, this is very smart and creative people and a bit of a muddle. Like it's, 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 I don't know. It's the console equivalent of like one of those 80s Neil Young albums that I like, but, you know, kind of figuring it out. Thank you very much. For me personally, this game is uh, very special for being kind of at a at a time in my life when I really was in the right place to like experience something like this. Uh, I had friends that were local and would come over frequently and we were just kind of look for something casual to play together so this was a perfect opportunity for that um it's one of those where if it had hit at any other point in my life i probably wouldn't have been in a place where i could have taken full advantage of it uh including right now so yeah i'm i'm really happy that i had the opportunity to play it through when i did um i i don't know if i love every game in the collection i mean i know that i don't love every game in the collection, but uh, there's probably only like, you know, three or four that I think really like stick with me that I really frequently think back on and are presenting novel enough concepts to where like they're really influential in the way that I kind of contextualize other games as well um, in my thinking. But, uh, you know, for being a 
a kind of free pack in a free tech demo, essentially a demonstration of the technology of the Wii U. A lot of care went into it. A lot of kind of aesthetic joy went into this package. The music is still something that I listen to frequently. And um, I'm, I'm always whistling this lobby tune to myself. Um, even <laughs> the music in all of the mini games, little kind of recreations of of uh, songs from each respective IP, usually done on like toy pianos and other types of toy instruments to sound kind of homemade and, and cute and fun are all um, uh, really worth seeking out. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if it is a, you know, big 10 out of 10 Super Mario Odyssey, like tour de force of Nintendo's talent, but it's uh, it has enough kind of novel and unique ideas that make it worth experiencing and worth experiencing soon. Because as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, this is one that is going to become very difficult to get your hands on as time goes on, I would expect. Um, the number of Wii U's circulating out there is not astronomical as, you know, as the number of Xbox 360s or PlayStation 4s or something like that. This game is just not going to be emulatable at all unless modders you know utilize many different technologies screens yeah exactly if some way of like hooking up your ipad to the computer and five or six additional (laughs) controllers that you would need to perform anyways it's not going to be easily emulatable in as such a uh, clean package as the uh as the wii u original so if you have the opportunity then i would definitely encourage you to give it a look uh, play through Luigi's Ghost Mansion, Mario Chase, Donkey Kong, and that uh, that Yoshi Racer game, I think, is where most of the magic lies for me personally. Mikiel, why don't you take us out? Yeah, it's um, so interesting to think back to Nintendo Land. Um, if you think back to the Wii and, you know, the inevitable comparison is going to be with Wii Sports here between Nintendo Land. Uh, if you think back to the Wii, what sold the Wii? It's not exactly the technology in itself. It's not exactly that, uh, you know, little box of hardware. It was Wii Sports for everybody. And you could see why it was such a smashing success because it was so friendly to, yeah, basically gaming illiterate people, you know, people that uh, never played a video game in their lives and that had very little interest in it uh, up until then. Nintendo Land should have been, I guess that game to sell the Wii U, but it it had a lot of factors working against it. Just the console itself being, yeah, as has been documented, it's a cliche in itself already, the, the Wii U being this flop or this hardware failure or this failure of a piece of hardware for Nintendo terms. But And, and you think like something equally strong in its own right as uh, Wii Sports could have sold the system uh, with with a packing title easily as strong as Wii Sports, you know. And Nintendo Land, unfortunately, wasn't that game. It wasn't the Wii Sports that uh, the Wii U as a system really, you know, needed. And maybe just the limited appeal of Second Scream asymmetrical gaming as a concept, as something that's easily communicate, you know, that's easily communicated as, uh, you know, having a, 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 a very broad appeal plays into that. That's one side of the story when it comes to Nintendo Land. The other side of the story is that this is still 
very much a mainstay in our household. Uh, this is played way more than Wii Sports is. Maybe the only thing that come close to many of the games in Nintendo Land, as far as staying power goes, as far as uh, you know, for for Wii Sports and maybe Wii Sports Resort, is uh, the bowling mini game. But every game that's in Nintendo Land, even the ones that I don't particularly care for, have a lot more to them. Uh, than the, uh, the 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 sporting events in Wii Sports do so, and maybe you do need to have some gaming literacy, literacy to be able to enjoy Nintendo Land more, or or at least develop it a little bit more. But um, yeah, for my money, this is definitely the more fun, interesting, and appealing game in the long run than Wii Sports was. So yeah, um, just two thumbs up, I suppose. Thank you very much. Interestingly, so much of the legacy of Nintendo Land has to do with the ado- um, adoption and the ultimate fate of the Wii U itself. And, you know, obviously we didn't get into a lot of that kind of meta story in this particular yeah. podcast, but we will be very soon, um, for Patreon members anyways, uh, cycling back to the story of the Wii U at large with a with one of our console specials in which we will be telling the story of the Wii U. We will be rehashing some of, uh, some of Nintendo Land and where it sits in the grander picture. So consider this a kind of companion piece. This is the more focused piece about that one particular game. And then the Wii U console special that we will be producing soon, very soon on the Patreon, and then six months out, I believe, on the uh, free feed, uh, is kind of the other half of that image so um yeah. these two go together in a way but anyways it remains for me ryan to thank jesse and mckeel as well as our correspondents and of course you for listening i don't know about you but i'm uh, i'm hyped up on hardware tech demos so let's uh, let's keep the train rolling in uh, in the next issue 546 let's look at another couple of tech demos with astrobot rescue mission and astro's playroom 